This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support truly helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. Well, my guest today, Chris Pearson, was born in Tehran, Iran, to American parents. He grew up in the D.C. area and attended Northern Virginia Community College. He co-created and wrote the bulk of the animated comedy show Dan Versus, which ran on the Hub Network for three seasons. In his capacity as executive producer, Chris was nominated for Daytime Emmy Awards in 2013 and 2014. Recently, he wrote an episode of the Netflix series Buddy Thunderstruck and is currently writing full-time for Now This Politics. For those reasons and so many more, I'm truly thrilled to welcome the great writer Chris Pearson to Storybee today. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's get into um, a little of your history. What were your earliest inspirations? How did you get into this thing called writing? What were my earliest inspirations? Um, Why did you become a writer? I think I always wanted to write something. Uh, yeah, I was always a big reader, and uh, you know, I think uh, on some level I always wanted to try to do the thing that I was enjoying so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that for for movies and TV, it was actually uh, the movie Clerks. Uh, it was the first time I watched something and I realized that somebody, probably with not too different sensibility for myself, had to sit down and write that before. Like, you know, you just watch TVs and movies and as a casual observer, you don't think about it as something that someone writes. Clerks, that's that's not Kevin Smith, is it? Oh, yeah, Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so that sensibility of sort of it's not really a play, it's a little bit more lifelike and natural, that appealed to you. Yeah, and also when I was writing fiction, uh, the part that I always got stuck on was the, the description. I always enjoyed the dialogue and the, the interaction between characters a little bit more than describing what the room looked like. So you think of yourself as a dialogue person more than a, a narrative structure person? I would say overall, yeah. Uh, but but yet stories are a structure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I I love telling stories. I just uh, uh, you know I would much rather say interior apartment crappy and get on with the the, the characters talking to each and other and let the artists figure it out. Right. Because especially when you're doing animation, you have that good grace. But even if you're doing live action, you've got uh, production designers. Set designers. And designers. Yep. Sure. Um, so all right. So at what age did you start to write? Well, I was writing short stories and stuff. I mean you know, back in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote my first screenplay, I was probably about 20. 20, and was that in a school or on your own? That was just on my own. And so you just had a fascination for it. Were, were you always a, a student of movies and TV? I always liked movies and TV. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I started studying anything that went into making them at all. Uh, yeah, I think I read Frank Capra's biography or something like that. But I didn't start reading about writing screenplays until I, I started writing my first one. All right, so nobody trained you to do this. No. You just started reading screenplays and emulating the, the, that form. Yes, and then a couple of years later, I, I took a, uh, a screenwriting class with my grandmother at the Writer <laughs> Center in Bethesda, Maryland. <laughs> you took 
she wasn't teaching it. She was taking nope. it with you. She, we took it together. I wrote a Northern Exposure, and she wrote a Picket Fences, maybe? Picket Fences? Yeah. Um, and so did, did has that script been of any value to you, other than it was a good training? That was it. That was it. You didn't yeah. use it as a spec for anything. No, I'm not even sure I finished it. <laughs> yeah. But so you enjoyed the process. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's what this show focuses on is process. Mm-hmm. And if you don't enjoy the process of writing in the first place and writing screenplays in the second place as a screenwriter, it would kind of be torture. Yes. Uh, so it has to be something that you enjoy, that's for sure. Or, or at least don't hate, you know. <laughs> there's there's that uh, Irma Bombeck quote about, I don't like writing, I like having written. Oh, well, that's, I'm one of those people, too. Yeah. I like having written. I'm yes. not, I don't like the process of sitting there and having to think it. It's hard work, hard work, you yes. know. But yet, uh, I love having written something. Mm-hmm. That's just very fulfilling. You find it the same. It's fulfilling. Absolutely. Okay, so... Uh, if you didn't go and get formal training anywhere, how many scripts or how much did you work on stuff before you thought to yourself, hey, I'm okay at this? Uh, I'll let you know when I get there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. When I, I, I pro- I'd probably written maybe four or five uh, feature scripts before I decided to move out to L.A. And from Maryland, from uh, the DC area, the DC fr- from area. Virginia. Yeah, got it. Um, yeah, when when I first, uh, so when I decided to move out, I was actually, I was kind of, it was one of those crossroads in life. I had taken the LSAT and done okay, and I was thinking about law school, and I had uh, gone through the entire screening process for Fairfax County Fire and Rescue. And I only had one more interview before I could become a firefighter trainee. Mm, mm. I'd done all like the physical abilities tests and all that stuff. And uh, and then there was going to L.A. And I was actually on the phone with the, uh, the the firefighter people and trying to schedule this interview. And I said, oh, I can't do Tuesday. And she said, how about Wednesday? And I said, I'm moving to Los Angeles. <laughs> and she said, on Wednesday? And I said, no, but we should probably, uh, you know, <laughs> cancel this because I've just decided I'm going to throw all my crap in a car and move cross country. That was, so was it, was it literally that much of a snap decision? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Well, I had this sort of realization that I could always go back and go to law school I could always well at the time I thought I could always go back and be a firefighter uh, I've, I've uh, developed a, a visual condition since then mm-hmm. uh, or at least discovered it um, so I, I didn't have that option but at the time I thought I always have the option to come back and try these other things I'm not always going to be at a point in my life where I could just but drop you, everything but you to... could always become a lawyer yeah sure. yeah I could and now that I'm going blind I could become uh, like daredevil right yeah. that's the <laughs> <laughs> you, yes, you could become like Daredevil. I hope you don't, but, but <laughs> because we like you just as you are as a writer. Um, uh, all right, so uh, you have now thought to yourself, I am going to Los Angeles and I'm going to, I assume, get mm-hmm. into the entertainment industry somehow. Yes. Which n- you're not the first person to have that thought. Right. What was the first thing you did when you got to L.A.? Oh, uh, well. In, so- in terms of the business, that is. Not not get a sandwich, but right. What, what did you do in terms of getting having your career go? You know, I would say the the mistake that I made when I first got out there was I assumed that it was going to be all about the writing. So what I did for the first couple of years was actually just hole up in a, a really crappy apartment in Hollywood. Um, I got there in Ju- July of '99, so the the big Kodak Center at Hollywood and Highland was yeah. actually just a huge pit in the ground. Right. And there were still, uh, you know, a lot of lot of homeless people and and drug deals going on on Hollywood Boulevard when I got there. Still are. Well, I mean, it's they few, cleaned it up tourists. a little. Yeah. <laughs> I got out there in 1976. It was full of addicts and right. prostitutes. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I had a couple interesting experiences where somebody's banging on my door at three in the morning going like, let me in. They're trying to kill me and stuff like that. So <laughs> were, were you living right there in that neighborhood? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right there. <laughs> and uh, like I said, I just I hold up in my, my apartment and I got temp jobs and, and uh, I worked as everything from accounts payable to I was a cowboy for the L.A. County Fair. A cowboy. Yep. Taught An kids how to, to actual rope. cowboy. We had these. Um, had you had bales. training in that before? I, I got about a, a day and a half of training before oh. I started. <laughs> <laughs> Instant cowboy. So we had these hay bales with plastic steers heads on them, and I was teaching kids how to throw a rope around the, the wow. plastic steer head. Yeah. Wow. At what, what, other, what other jobs did you do? Because that's one of the hallmarks of struggling writers mm -hmm. is that if you want to, unless you're independently wealthy to begin with, uh, you must do things to be able to put food in the table and pay the rent. Yep. What else did you do? Well, like I said, there's a lot of temping. Uh, a lot of, I worked at, at uh, Fox and the... Uh, uh, Standards and Practices Department. Uh, I I moved furniture. You're that guy. I was uh, well. I was the assistant to that guy. Got it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I was a. I, there was one time that I was a bodyguard. Uh, bodyguard. Yeah. Well, somebody that I knew peripherally uh, needed to drive to Las Vegas and pick up two hundred thousand dollars in cash. Oh. And I'm a big guy, and uh, I guess he thought that that having a big guy there would. You know, I don't. I don't know what he expected me to do if you know six guys came out of the woodwork and took the money. Uh, would have waved at him, described him to the police later, or, or just run. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you have primarily written comedy. That's yes. your, your bailiwick. Mm -hmm. You don't write uh, drama, per, per, you know, per se. You write mostly comedy. Mostly, yeah. I've I've tried. Uh, I. At one point, I told you I tried to write a uh, historical baseball drama about yeah. my great grandfather. It didn't didn't work out well. I find when I when I don't go for the joke, it's either too soft or it's melodramatic. Whereas I can tell I have an internal gauge whether something's funny. You can tell when something's funny, right? What, has that been that way your whole life? Well, I think everybody thinks they've got an above average sense of humor, but uh, uh, I yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed comedy. I'm saying, were you the class clown? Were you a jokester as a kid? I was. And so, so you've always known that that's something that you had a, at least some a talent for, or some appreciation of. Yeah, I have a very uh, uh, my my family's an easy, easy audience and always has been. So I think that they encouraged me in a, a you know the wrong They're, direction early you on. You have good laughers in the family, right? And so when you did something that was silly or goofy, they laughed. They did, and that's helpful because if they just looked at you like you're a moron, <laughs> th that would that might tell you something opposite. I'd be better at writing cringe comedy. Cringe. If I did that. Well, yeah. you write a little bit of cringe comedy every once in a uh, while. My comedy makes people cringe. That's not the same thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's the difference? Tell us right. the difference between. <laughs> Is something that makes people cringe and is cringe comedy. Well, I think cringe comedy is is that that uh, you know awful moment. You know the the uh, other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> um, whereas you know comedy that makes people. I think I think the function of comedy is in large part to get people out of their comfort zone and you know to sort of get them laughing at something that might make them feel a little uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but not necessarily because of the just the social awkwardness of it. You know? mm -hmm. So okay, so when did did you immediately after you'd started to write um, various things early on? Did you then start to write comedy? Yeah, well, I, I think I let's see. What, what did you? What kind of specs did you write? So the first, first, well, I actually went out to LA to try to break into live action features and just sort of ended up in animated TV. Uh, but I did write some spec shows. Guess what? Yep. Me too. Okay. Well, there you go. 
I, I fell into animation. I didn't go out there to, to be in animation, but I, I enjoyed it, but, mm-hmm. I, but I fell into it. So I understand that that can happen. Yes. All right, so how, how, what, what were you writing? Were you just writing features? Yeah, I, I, did, uh, I did, wrote a lot of spec scripts also. Uh, I, I was working with a writing partner when I first got out there, and we wrote uh, Frasier episode and you know just a bunch of uh, stuff. Nothing that ever went into production, but just a bunch of spec scripts for, for various shows. Did it get you an agent? Uh, that one actually did not get us an agent. Um, what got us an agent was our feature script that was about uh, the romantic lives. It was a romantic comedy about serial killers. Mm, the romantic lives of serial killers. Yes. Was this going to be a series? No, this was a feature. Feature. Yep. And and uh, how did that go? That sounds like a great idea. We got a lot of meetings on it, and everybody said there's no way we'll ever make this, but we thought it was really funny. Well, there's okay, so let's talk about that for a moment. Mm-hmm. Hollywood is filled with those stories that you just told, yeah. where something gets attention, mm-hmm. but they have no intention of ever making that thing. But they bring you in because they have other things in mind. Or what else do you have? Yes. Right? They come in, they want to know what else you have because we like you as a writer, mm-hmm. but this is not for us. Yeah, and then, of course, years later, like they say, oh, we could never do something with a serial killer as the main character. And then years later, Dexter. Dexter, sure. And, and, you know. Sure. So uh, we were just a little too far ahead of the curve on that one, I guess. Uh, That happens, too. Yeah. You know, where you see something 10 years after you came up with the idea, and there it is, Mm -hmm. full bloom, and you're not involved in it. Yep. This happens really commonly as well. But the the notion that you must— uh, this is for the listeners who are trying to figure their way out. Mm-hmm. Um, you must be willing to work on and develop things that may never, ever see the light of day. But those things become, in a marketing sense, what are known as lost leaders. Mm-hmm. Right? So you develop it and hope that it turns into something that they want you to do. Yes. Well, everything that I've written, I've, I've you know, had the, the naive hope that it would actually be, be filmed at some point. But uh, I've written over 20 feature scripts. Wow. Uh, I've gotten paid for one feature script, and none of them have gone into production. And and would you like to have one go? Oh, yeah. Who wouldn't, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've written 20 of them. Right. Do you keep writing them? I do. Well, uh, for the last year, I've only done the Now This Politics stuff. Um, it's hard to, to work a full-time writing job and then, you know, make dinner and put the kids to bed and do the dishes and then sit down in front of the computer again. Sure. So you only you only work at night? Um, well, so uh, Now This is uh, is during the day. But then I'm on dad duty as soon as I'm done with All that. All right, so let's talk about now this since we're onto it. How does that process work? What do you do on now this? Well, so that was uh, I was actually brought in about a year ago uh, for the midterm elections, and uh, the idea was so they had brought in in order to ramp up for the midterms, they had brought in a bunch of uh, video editors. And most of them were, were great, and some of them just needed a little extra help telling a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. So the, the process there is uh, there are three main things that happen. Either I get a script from one of the video editors just to look over, give them my ideas, or every once in a while I'll do a little restructuring, uh, or generating original scripts that they can then hand off to the video editors, or sometimes they'll, they'll give me a, a half-hour interview with somebody and say, hey, could you find five minutes about this topic and make it coherent? Within an existing Within, interview. yeah. Are you then cutting it as well? I don't do any of the cutting. But you make suggestions on where to cut. Yes, I write the script, and then somebody cuts it according to that script. Okay, so, so you're taking existing material, and are you then punching it up in some way? Or are you? At, That's you, another thing that I do, yeah. And actually, lately I've been doing... Um, candidate profiles. So who is John Hickenlooper? Who is Bernie Sanders? But with a humorous bent. Yes. 
I would say more snarky than humorous. Snark. Well, yeah. okay. It's in, it, snark is within the uh, greater umbrella of comedy. Yes. Yeah. Not to split hairs, but yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, if you if you find it funny, that's the key. Mm-hmm. That to me, that's the definition of comedy. By the way. Yes. Do you laugh or not? That's the only definition. Mm-hmm. If you don't laugh, it's not comedy. If you do laugh, it is. That makes sense. Okay. Good. <laughs> Glad to hear we're on the same page. All right. So. Are you working with people online? Yeah, that's. Uh, I work from home. Uh, the main office is in New York. Uh, then everybody's boss is in San Francisco, so there are teleconferences and stuff like that. But mostly, it's um, it's an app called Slack. It's okay, uh, sure. kind of like the old uh, AOL chat, almost. If you remember that. Yes. Yeah. So that's pretty much what most of the uh, the, the back and forth is on. Are you is and that, Google Docs and Google Docs? Yeah. Is the is are you on Slack at all times? Yes. So, so are you essentially working in a writer's room only online? Well, there's no. Uh, let me think. Uh, so, so, so we, when we, I turn in a script, there's not sort of a. Uh, I have a, a supervisor, and he's got a supervisor, and they'll look over the script. But uh, uh, for the most part, there's not really a, a writing team working on it. It's just you. It's yeah. So, so you're not working um, to write with anybody. No, or they'll say, "Hey, Chris, could you look over this person's script?" And I'll give it a look. And you know, nine times out of ten, I'm like, "Hey, it's great. I made two tweak suggestions." But uh, but but most of the time, it's you're doing something and getting feedback from somebody else, right. Or you're providing feedback to something else, right? But there's no there's no group. There's, there's no room. N- there's n- you're it. You're the you're the chief writer. Well, yeah, sort of. <laughs> I have a boss, and uh, and I would say that he's is he also a writer? Yeah, actually, he's the the he was my first writing partner in L.A. and and he's the one who brought me on board. Got it, got it. So this is the same person that you wrote the scripts with earlier, then? Yeah, the serial killer comedy stuff like that. Got it. Who is not uh, my writing partner on Dan versus on Dan versus? We'll get to Dan versus here shortly. Mm -hmm. Um, So on on now this it's a it takes you all day. You're on it all day long. Yeah, it's is six eight. Ten hours. What is it per day? Uh, so when I started, it was uh, it was just a normal forty hour week, and they they after the midterms, uh, we thought they were going to roll me off. I thought it was a, a short term temp job. That, and, that sounds like a euphemism for something. Right. Roll, roll me off. <laughs> I, um, so anyway, I'm still there, and they did uh, uh, cut my hours back to thirty hours a week, which is great because, like I said, I'm I'm primary parent uh, for for my kids. Mm-hmm. So. Because your wife's it in works school, out well. right? Yes. My wife is in med school. We, we moved to Pittsburgh about three years ago. Uh, she is just starting her fourth year of med school now. So how much more difficult... Well, I guess you, you've got it locked a little bit in the sense that you are able to work at home and take care of your kids. You don't have to go away for eight hours a day to some other job and then come home and get the kids. Right. And pay for childcare and all that. All that. Yeah. You, it so works out really well. I would say that's a, that's a almost like the perfect situation. Yes. Because uh, your kids are old enough where they're off to school. They're not, they're not in... Uh, diapers anymore right so uh um, summer's been a little challenging but yeah well yeah i would think it would be Mm -hmm. uh but but in the meantime you're able to do your job at home without any sweat whatsoever yeah it's been pretty great um and not all jobs are like that obviously no all right so let's talk a little bit about dan versus um what led you to create dan versus well, uh, Dan versus uh, so my my writing partner on that Dan Mandel. Let, let's des- let's describe the show first. Oh yeah, what is the show about for those who have never seen it? Uh, I would say it is a it was on a kids cartoon network. Yeah. Um, but it's a, a story of a misanthropic arsonist 
who is wronged in some way at the beginning of every episode, and then he raises his tiny fist to the sky, and whatever it is that's wronged him, you know, there's Dan versus the Wolfman, Dan versus New Mexico. So he raises his fist to the sky, New Mexico! And then he has to get revenge on whatever person, place, or thing uh, instigated. So it's, it's, a, it's a show with nonstop revenge. Yes. And that's always the motivating factor in pretty much every episode. Pretty much, yeah, that's the story engine. And then, uh, you know, Dan also has a lot of other self-destructive tendencies. The character Dan also has a lot of other self-destructive tendencies that come out. And his friend, uh, so the characters are named after the creators of the show, me and, and Dan Mandel and my wife, Elise. So the main characters are Dan, Chris, and Elise. And uh, so I should really just make an effort to be clear when I'm talking about the characters yes. when I'm talking about us. Sure. Um, so, yeah, and then... then uh, Not that there aren't crossover p- potentials between them. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. So what led you to create the show in the first place? So the show uh, was originally, my co-creator Dan Mandel had an idea for a show uh, called Dan Versus that was going to be like an eastbound and down, sort of a hard R, Dan versus the neighbors, Dan versus the mailman, live action uh, uh, sitcom. Mm-hmm. And my agent called me and said that Adult Swim was looking for a cartoon. And I said, you know, that Dan versus thing would be a lot of fun because you could have, you know, whatever. You could set it on the moon if you want to in sure. the animated form. Uh, so I called Dan and I said, uh, hey, what do you think about making this a cartoon? And he said, if you can sell it, you can make, turn it into a puppet show for all I care. And uh, <laughs> Dan sounds like he was interested in money. Well, I think Dan was interested in, uh, you know, he, he was sort of like, fine, if you can get it done, great, but don't bother me with it otherwise. <laughs> uh, and so then, yeah, we, uh, we wrote... Uh, we wrote a, a, a mini Bible. Uh, Dan had uh, had some cartoons that he'd drawn from way back that we actually were able to cut and paste into our into our show Bible. And then, uh, is he an artist? No, he's an actor by by trade, but uh, uh, he had, he was a doodler, and so we took some of his doodles and, and put it in the mini Bible. And Got then it. I wrote a couple of. Uh, I wrote uh, the first two episodes, basically, although we didn't know if we were writing for 11 minute or 22 minutes, so they ended up sort of halfway between. Right. Um, How many pages in between? uh, 18, 18 18 or 20. That's that's in between. Yeah. Uh, And so, yeah, and then then, uh, sent it around, and uh, the the hatchery, which at the time was was headed by uh, Margaret Loesch and Dan Angel, Yeah. uh, they optioned us. Uh, I think... I think that the the guy who found us there, a guy named Sean Gorman, might have been the only person in animation that my agent knew. And so he liked us and brought us in, and they decided to option it. And we chopped it around, and everybody said no. And then a year and a half, two years later, everybody in all the Cartoon Networks got fired at the same time, basically, which happens every once in a while, I yeah. guess. Like, the, the stars aligned. Yeah, and it does happen that way. So then uh, we... And uh, then they play musical chairs and they switch jobs. Well, in this case, I think a lot of them just left. And then uh, uh, we shopped it around to everybody else, and everyone said no again, uh, except Cartoon Network actually said yes. And then we spent a year in development hell at Cartoon Network, which was one of the worst experiences. Uh, it was terrible. Do you want to explain why, or would you rather not? Uh, no, it was uh, sure. I'd like. I I have no reason not to. <laughs> okay, I, just so you don't you know you don't feel uncomfortable talking about anybody specific that uh, did something untoward. Right. No. Uh, well, there. So we would have these creative meetings with this executive who uh, I'm not sure what his deal was, but uh, there's. I remember one time. 
he was saying that they had had an internal meeting and they decided to age the characters down to high school. How old were they to start? Uh, so, so a lot of the humor comes from the fact that Dan is probably in his late twenties, early thirties, right. and old enough to know better. And so he goes flying off the handle, but and, somewhat uh, um, childlike in his right, approach. Right, right. And so I sort of made that point to him. I said, you know, a lot of the humor in this is, uh, you know, is, is from the fact that Dan's old enough to know better. And I, I just worry that if we age him down to high school, like if a if a thirty year old is screaming at the top of his lungs, it can be funny. If an 18-year-old is pissed off at the world, that's just kind of what being 18 is. Yeah. And he, he actually glared at me. He gave me a, like a, a full-on stare down for a three count. And then he said, <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> and uh, it, was a, it was a lot like meeting with a Ben Stiller sketch. It was <laughs> just nuts. And uh, yeah, so... <laughs> which, which, by the way, goes on every day all over Hollywood. Right. <laughs> Well, and he's also like, well, just think about when you were 17. I was like, okay, which part of the, you know, premarital sex and drugs and juvenile delinquency are we allowed to show on your children's network? (laughs) Because I'll write something about when I was 17, but it's not what you think I'm going to write. And how did he respond? Well, it was was bad all around. And as it turned out, their legal department was as bad as their creative department. So uh, Margaret, the head of the hatchery, would uh, negotiate terms with the business affairs people at Cartoon Network, and then the contracts would show up, and they'd have completely different terms in them. Mm-hmm. And this went on for a year, where you know I'm banging my head against the wall creatively, and apparently the the legal people are banging their heads against the wall. And at the end of that year, uh, Margaret calls us, and she said they're starting a new network called The Hub, and they've asked me to run it. So Margaret became the president and CEO of The Hub Network, and she took us with her. And that's how lightning struck and Dan versus finally got on the air somewhere. Because the hub could go could skew more toward a slightly older audience. Well, and and the hub could really do whatever they wanted because they they were a brand new network. Uh, they didn't tend to. They were co-founded by Hasbro, so they had Transformers Prime, and they they started with a new GI Joe and My Little Pony. But Margaret liked us enough and believed in the show enough that she brought us with her. So I'm curious. It was you know a network that was. Um, I guess supported totally by Hasbro. It was mostly uh, Hasbro. It was uh, half Hasbro, half Discovery Kids. Okay, so was there any pressure on you to do things that resulted in merchandising potential? No, in fact, they wanted, we were sort of the show they could point to and say, see, we're not just Hasbro. Ah. Yeah. You you were the you were their a beard, so to speak. Right. To say we're not just purely a marketing machine. Right, they're token there's no commercial value to this. Because I, I, in my days of writing lots of cartoons, um, mm-hmm. there were many times where I was told, you need to put this toy into the show. Right. We, we have this, this super ray gun, and you need to add it into your episode somewhere. Yeah, we, we were the opposite of that. In fact, we did uh, an episode called Dan versus Stupidity, and uh, <laughs> Dan saw a, a, a billboard for a, a show called Humongo Bots 4, yeah. and the tagline was, just ignore the story and watch stuff blow up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it wasn't until so you know went through the script went through the animatic everything and it wasn't until the show actually aired that uh, the the executive from the Hub Network wrote us a really angry email about I just realized that this could be seen as a transformer as a dig on Transformers. <laughs> oh, that little slow on the uptake was I, he? I, she. Uh, and oh, she. I I I thought we were very clear about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, apparently she she did not realize that that's what that was, or oh. maybe she had just gotten yelled at from the Hasbro people. Oh, I'm undoubtedly, yeah. or she was worried she was about to get yelled at by the Hasbro people. Right, one, one of those two, and maybe a little of both. Who knows? Um, all right, so let's talk about the process of making Dan verses into a show. So mm-hmm. y- you have an idea. It's 
Dan Mandel comes up with an idea. He says it's Dan versus. Right. Or, and then you sit down and the two of you work that out, what the show was about, that, that you decided that it was the three characters named Dan, Chris, and Elise? Well, so Dan, as an actor, wanted to do his own voice. And so we thought that we would have a better chance of that if we named the characters after ourselves. And it turns out we were wrong. And actually, uh, you know, we got some really fantastic voice actors to, to do the job. So it worked out better for everybody. But that's why the characters were named after us. Well, voice actors are a unique breed. Mm -hmm. um, that's for sure. They do things with their voices that you wouldn't do live. Mm-hmm. And ver vice versa. Live actors don't know what to do with their voices when it comes to animation, often. Well, our cast, uh, our, our main cast, our three main actors, uh, were they, they've all worked in both uh, live and live, an live sure. action and, and animated. And so they, they translate pretty well between the two. But, but they absolutely, and that happens frequently. And what mm -hmm. I'm saying is, is they're different, slightly different skill sets within the same oh, definitely. Uh, ballpark. Yes. Um, all right. So. How did you decide what to write as a pilot? Was it you that made all the decisions, or did you and Dan make it? Uh, well, the first couple of episodes, I actually just kind of went off and wrote. I, I was. Uh, did Dan just let you go? Yeah, pretty much for the for the first couple. I mean, he I sent him my first drafts. He weighed in. He added a bunch of funny lines. Um, but yeah, I think of the first six episodes we wrote, uh, I think I did the first draft on five of them. So you came up with the way that the show really was structured and how it worked and what the tone of it was and what the voice of the show was. Well, Dan and I had discussed uh, what, what the, the structure was going to be. You know, it's, it's against the, the Skyward Scream in the yeah. beginning and then, you know, a, a long, drawn-out revenge scheme that either ends in a win-lose or draw, right? Is it more frequent that it was win-lose or draw, which is more frequent? Um, I think that... I think there were a lot of pirate victories, right? Like a lot of uh, uh, he's technically gotten some measure of revenge so that the audience could feel satisfied the story was over, but it was never, like Dan's never in a better place at the end of the episode. So there's there was no growth for Dan. No, none. Dan remained a an immature, angry person. Once again, I'd like to, to specify this is the character Dan. <laughs> I understand. This is the character Dan, not the person Dan. Right, yes. Uh, yeah, so the character Dan. Loosely based on Dan. Loosely based on Dan. Without it being Dan at all. Right. Got it. Okay. All right. Did you, when you work on a script, do you work from an outline? Do you work outline out or how do you do it? Well, when we were at the hub, we had to because we had to get an outline approved before sure. we went into the, but I actually found that the, the less detailed the outline was, the, the better the episode came out usually. Was it easier to get them through when they were less detailed? Uh, sometimes. Or, or did the executives want more information? It really depended on which season, which executive. So once you once they trusted that the show was working, they backed off of you somewhat. I would say they never trusted the show was working. <laughs> um, I think that that's just th through through the internal uh, machinations of, of whatever was going on at the hub. We had a couple of different executives, and uh, so some of them were more sort of micromanagers than than others how many total episodes were written over the whole length of the series 53 and how many of those did you write uh 30 something and so did you then hire freelance writers yes uh well in seasons two because you and didn't three, have a staff right y you were the staff well uh so in the first season it was dan and me and uh there's uh, they brought in a creative consultant uh to sort of be the they weren't going to let us run our own show from the get-go uh so they brought is, in is this bruce no actually this was a guy named rob long rob long who uh he does a great podcast called martini shot on kcrw and uh he used to be the showrunner on Cheers, and uh, he 
co-created Sullivan and Son, I think, mm-hmm. which uh, was on TBS a little while ago. Because you guys had never done a show before. Right. So, so they, they wanted somebody to trust you with it. Exactly. So uh, he came in and he was great because he didn't write any episodes, but he'd always uh, throw in, you know, sometimes the funniest line in an episode. But also he was very invested in he's he basically his his mentality was I'll give you the best advice I can and then you can decide whether to take it or not because it's your show, not mine. Well, so that, that's helpful. It was fantastic. Uh, there was a guy who was in for the first month before him who was not as helpful, mm-hmm. and uh, there were some some clashes there. Um, but he wound up going bye-bye. Well, so then Rob couldn't commit to, because Sullivan and Son was starting up in season two, and so he couldn't commit to the same time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they, they uh, Jay Fukuda, who was the head of Film Roman, who was our animation studio. Yes, who I work with at Disney. Right. Uh, brought in a guy named Bruce Ferber, who is a friend of yours. Well, well, he's been a guest on StoryBeat. Okay. Well, he's a friend of mine. And uh, uh, yeah, so he came in, fact, in for season two. that's how you and I got together is through Bruce Ferber. That's right. So it's all one chain. Yes. It's a chain of events. All right. So uh, um, you always then had someone with you who was um, slightly more up the level of Hollywood uh, to, to sort of oversee things. Right. And more to, to sort of run interference between the Hub Network and, and the writer's room. Uh, I think early on, um, maybe we had a thinner skins for criticism, and it was really nice to have Rob in the room to sort of, you know, go back and forth before we learned to do it ourselves and to, to say, okay, so this was a stupid note. Don't get mad about it. Figure out how you're going to address it or not address it. And Okay, this is valuable, what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, most, I find that most uh, newer writers, it's ones that don't have any real professional experience yet, that they tend to be thin-skinned. This mm-hmm. is my baby. Don't touch it. It's perfect the way it is. Right. We know what we're doing, and no one else does. Yeah, and also you put so much of yourself into it, especially when it's your first script or first five scripts, you know, first ten scripts even. Um, when somebody criticizes it, you feel like they're criticizing you. You know, if this this joke doesn't land, you think they're saying you're not funny. Right. Right. So, And that, that is something that... I don't think there's an easy way to get over that except just by being in there and hearing the same, you know, and sometimes the criticisms are way off and and idiotic and sometimes they're right. And learning to tell the difference between those two is, I think, one of the the best skills you can learn. Well, there's no doubt that a lot of notes in Hollywood are idiotic, but many of them are very helpful. Right. And even some of the idiotic ones can be helpful if you say, okay, so this person obviously didn't get what I was trying to do here. How can I make that more clear? Right. Even if they're absolutely wrong in what they're saying, they can be right in that. I, you know, I can I can improve this anyway. So right. I tell my screenwriting students all the time, which is this is exactly what you're saying, uh, that when you get notes, take the notes. You don't have to accept the notes, but you should you should at least absorb them because um, or you don't have to act on a note, but you need to hear it because someone was thrown off by it in mm-hmm. some way. And so how can how can you address that to make things even better? And frequently that turns into a much better s- circumstance. And even if the note is not um, fully addressed or uh, you don't take their note, but it triggers something else that's better mm-hmm. uh, because somebody, as we could say, bumped on it. Right, right. And there's a reason they bumped, well, possibly, or maybe they're just the wrong person for the script. But it's also it's always worth taking a look at. I mean, when we'd get our, our pages of notes from the network, I sort of divided them into three categories. Right? And the first one is like word tweaks or, you know, can we make the balloon red instead of blue? <laughs> you know, what, like those things, you just just absolutely accept those notes. Uh, Rob Long had a trick where he would occasionally say, that was a fantastic note. This works so much better with a blue balloon. 
you know, and sort of <laughs> praise the, you know, get the executive, uh, uh, you know, thinking, wow, this guy's really on my team. Did they right? get that they were being dissed? The, uh, well, he, he didn't say dissed. He'd say it was handling, right? Like, handling. <laughs> and uh, he, he does tell a funny story about one time when an executive was like, don't handle me. And he's like, I'm not. It's just a great note, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so most so 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 you get the you get the minor notes that I just think you should just take all of. I think you should take every note well, and ex- and say thank you very much. Right, but I mean I mean when addressing, yeah, yeah. So right. so when you're when you're doing the rewrite, I mean, so you I, so I always implemented all the minor notes, uh, and then I would, you know, sometimes I, then I would figure out the ones that I okay, like maybe this isn't the way that I do it, but it doesn't really harm the script, or maybe they had a really good point, and so you you implement those notes. And then for the ones that you don't want to implement, uh, half of them I would just ignore because, honestly, if the script goes back to them and it's different, they're not going to remember what they said the last time around. So how many of those notes do you think are political? That is to say you do them just to satisfy someone else. It doesn't hurt the show. It doesn't bother you that much. You could have left it the way it was, uh, but you've changed it to satisfy someone's note for a political purpose. I'd say about a third. A third. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important for people to know, that it's okay to address notes for political reasons within the context of your little tiny town called a a show. Right. Uh, It's helpful. Because, you know, and, and you hear this a lot, but people say everybody's trying to make the best show they can. Right. And that is both true and also everybody also might have a very different vision for what the show is going to be. So you do have to protect your vision somewhat. But honestly, if somebody, you know, if an executive says, I hate the name Jennifer, I had an ex-girlfriend named Jennifer, can we change this to Becky? Change the name to Becky. Like, unless there's a reason that it has to be Jennifer, yeah, just just play ball. Right. Like, for instance, it's it's your daughter's name and you want it in that episode then it becomes something to fight over. Right. And then for notes I really disagreed with that I felt would negatively impact the story, sometimes I would uh, I'd ask a clarifying question that was really uh, a way for me to avoid doing the note. Like I'd say, hey, when you say this doesn't work, is it for this reason, in which case I'll do A, or is it for this reason, in which case I'll do B? And even if it was neither of those reasons, I think they felt compelled to pick one, and then I'd get a solution that I was okay with out of this this bad note that, that I felt wasn't going to be good for the show. Okay, so you've, you've uh, alluded to yet something else that I tell people all the time, which I think is great, which is the best way to handle notes that you don't agree with is to ask questions. Right, because sometimes, sometimes you'll get to, you know, a... Uh, uh, like, well, I didn't mean that the scene doesn't work. I meant that I didn't like this part of it. Right. right. Or sometimes, like I said, if you give them if you give them two options to fix the scene that you do agree with, then maybe you can steer them away from forcing you to, to change the scene in a way that you don't agree right. with. Yeah. It's almost always better to make the person who's giving the note think that they're contributing to the change. Mm-hmm. It's just always better because then they don't feel like you're threatening in any way. Right. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on because there's a certain amount of insecurity in this business because who knows anything? Right. You know, William <laughs> Golden said nobody knows anything. And there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, here's the thing. You can't give a script to an executive or to anyone who's who, who has some responsibility for it and say, what do you think? And have them say, you know, it looks great. Like if somebody says that to you, that means that your show's being canceled. <laughs> right. And they yeah, just don't care true. anymore. Like, that's, that's absolutely true because they all, whoever they are, in whatever position they're in, if they have any influence on your show at all, 
they will um, want to feel like they're contributing, that they're earning their keep. Right, because if they're not, then why are why they there? Why are they there? Right. Exactly right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, you're always fighting that a little bit. And people will frequently give notes because that's their job is to give notes, and they know that the note is not necessarily going to be taken. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think that's all really well. Yep. So, so if you take the 60% of the notes that, that – you know, or minor, and mm-hmm. take the thirty percent of the notes that that uh, you know you you more or less agree with, or that you don't feel are negative, and then for the last ten percent, you either ask questions to try to steer it in the right way, or like I said, for that last five percent, I just sort of ignore them because uh, again, if the script were significantly different when it came back, they wouldn't remember what they'd asked for last so, time. So there, the uh, um, TV in particular is is replete with stories of producers who take a note, say thank you very much, and then go off and do nothing, and then hand it back in mm-hmm. and get a note back saying, that's terrific what you did. Right. And there was nothing done. Sometimes you need to, uh, so you go through the script when it's in revision mode, and you'll delete a space and add a space so that you get the little asterisk by the yes. side of it so that it looks like you've made all these changes. Uh, um, you're you're giving away a trick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, but again, you know, you only do that for for five percent of the or notes, you right? change one word. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly right. All right. So m- you were not just the writer, but and creator, but you were also one of the producers of the show, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So most producing and writing uh, comes with a degree of pressure to produce on time, on deadline, and so on. Yeah. And to produce a certain way, and to ha- make sure it has some um, aesthetic that's the same from episode to episode. Do you have any tried and true tricks to handle pressure? Uh, you know, actually, I find that I do a lot better when I have some sort of deadline. Um, when I have, when there's no reason for me to write any particular thing, I end up not writing anything for a very long time. Whereas, um, you know, there, there's a, a, an old joke uh, in movies: you try to write until it's perfect, and TV, you write until it's Friday. <laughs> and so, in our first uh, season, we had a new table read every week, and and again, we didn't have a writing staff per se. Um, so it was me and Dan and then uh, Rob Long in the first season and then these really talented guys, Eric and Kirill, who uh, who came on board and they were sort of somewhere in the first season, they were somewhere between writers' assistants and staff writers. Right. Um, and uh, But they weren't really full-time in the first season. And so... They were sort of writing schleps, weren't they? Yeah, well, they, they had... Uh, they eventually uh, left because they were not getting good deals for, for their services at the Hub and are successful today. So mm-hmm. they're, they're doing great. Don't worry about Eric and Carell. They're fine. All right. Um, I've stopped worrying. So, uh, so yeah. So we had a new table read every week in the first season. And, uh, you know, I, I think Dan and I, we shared our writing credits in that first season. I think we're credited with maybe 18 out of the 22 mm-hmm. episodes. Mm-hmm. And so every Monday... You know, I mean, whatever you had, that was getting read in front of a bunch of people, and it was really great incentive to get stuff done. Was it? I imagine sometimes that was terrifying. It was always terrifying. Always but, terrifying. But uh, but yeah. On the other hand, it was also really, uh, you know, it was really productive. It was a very productive time because, you know, like I said, with, with whatever you had, that was getting read. Well, nothing focuses the mind like a hard deadline. Right. Right. And so, I mean, I remember in season two. There was a, you know, it was Friday. We had just gotten the outline approved, which happened a lot for Monday's table read. And my daughter ended up going into the pediatric ICU. Ooh. 
And so I, I ended up, you know, staying with her the first eight hours. And basically after that, through the weekend, I'd sort of split my time between trying to get this episode done. How did you manage to think? Yeah. This is a good question. How, how did you manage to write and write comedy and snark and all the rest of it while you were thinking about your daughter? Well, it was actually a really good escape from the—, the And also, I, I should say, that it wasn't anything— when we didn't know what was going on, it was really terrifying. Uh, she she just wasn't. She was having sort of a prolonged asthma attack. Got it. And so for the first uh, night we were there, we had no idea what was going on, and and her oxygen levels kept dipping, and it was really terrifying. And I didn't get anything done then. But once once they sort of got it under control, then then uh, you know and we realized it wasn't life threatening. So you there, therefore you were able to go back to. So I was able to get back thinking to thinking again. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise your brain just doesn't want to function. Right, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, but that episode actually ended up being one of my favorite of all of them. It was uh, Dan versus the telemarketer. And, Dan uh, versus the telemarketer. Yeah. And I really liked that one. So what, what what made that episode special for you? Well, we had uh, so in season one we had uh, uh, John C. McGinley. Yes. Uh, come in. Uh, Dr. Cox from Scrubs. Right. Uh, and many movies. Yes, and he was Dan versus Dan, and he was a guy that basically took Dan's identity. And at the end of that episode, Dan defeats him and sends him off to jail. And then Dan versus the telemarketer, he comes, Dan starts getting plagued by telemarketing calls. And you find out that it's this character who's returned to plague him again. And uh, so he was just a lot of fun to work with. And the character was a lot of fun. And like I said, we went to some weird psychological places with it, you know, about the nature of identity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think he's in the movie Identity. I could be wrong. Uh, he might be. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> That's, which is a very interesting movie. I haven't seen movie. that in a while. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a pretty good movie, but uh, I don't know whether he's in that or not. Anyway, it's mm -hmm. not, not relevant to what we're talking about. Right. Um, okay, so the old line is, uh, dying is easy, comedy is hard. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to, to define, but do you know what makes comedy so difficult to do? Well, for me, I don't. I don't think it is. I mean, I don't think it's, it's as difficult as drama. Well, no, I mean, none, none of it's easy, but, but drama is so much harder for me that... Uh, you know, and again, I can look at a page and tell you if a joke is funny. I can't look at a page and tell you if the scene is dramatic. You can tell before anybody's read it out loud that that joke's going to land. Yeah. Yeah, or if it doesn't, then I feel like the problem's the audience. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> if it doesn't land, it's the audience's problem. So in your mind's eye, it works. Yeah, I, I think I can or get not. a pretty good sense of, of how funny something is on the page. And when you get it into a table read or mm -hmm. into the studio, one of the two, mm -hmm. and you get actors who are, I hope, plussing the work oh, yeah. that's there, because actors, the, the voice actors always plus what's there, mm -hmm. if they're any good at all. Yes, and uh, ours were very good. And, and and most in Hollywood that are voice actors are very good, mm -hmm. are surprisingly good, like, like really astonishing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when they plus it, do you then realize it wasn't what you thought it was? Or is it always, hey, they just took what I knew worked and just made it a little better? I would say a lot of the time, uh, so so our voice cast were uh, Curtis Armstrong, who's yeah. probably best known as Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. Yes, but uh, also, also on Moonlighting. Yes, Moonlighting, and he shows up in supporting roles in everywhere. Lots of things, yeah, sure. you, you can't turn on the TV or watch a movie without he's seeing a, him every once in a while. I'm pretty sure he's in Risky Business. Oh, yeah, he, Risky Business, uh, Better Off Dead. Yeah. Uh, he was the Metatron in Supernatural for <laughs> season after season. Yeah. Um, 
so he was just fantastic. And then uh, the person playing Chris uh, was a guy named Dave Foley, who you might have heard of from Kids in the Hall, News Radio. News Radio. Sure. Again, you know, supporting roles in many, many things and also a really talented writer himself. Of course. Uh, and then our uh, Elise was Paget Brewster from uh, Community, mm -hmm. CSI, Andy Richter Controls the Universe. Mm -hmm. So just really astonishingly talented people. And they would... I would say a lot of the time they'd read the line like I thought they would read the line, and it was as funny as I thought it would be. And then every once in a while they would have a completely different reading that was so much funnier than, uh, I mean, Curtis in particular just had these different levels and flavors of anger that he developed over the, the course of the show that uh, <laughs> just sold so many of the lines that, like, there would be lines where like, oh, that, that's all right, that's not, that's not, I didn't hit it out of the park on that one, but it's okay. And then Curtis would read it, and I'd be like, I am a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, that's that's the whole thing is that the, the, the actor brings that thing to life. Mm -hmm. And when it's on the page, that's why I'm curious that you're able to see it on the page because sometimes I can see it and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I have to hear it said. Mm -hmm. But you're saying you know in advance. I'm saying I know, yeah, a lot more with comedy than, than with drama. Absolutely. I find that fascinating. That's a that's a a skill set you're born with. That's not something that I, you can develop it, but I don't think that's something you can go get. You either have it or you don't. Or you know maybe it's just uh, maybe I'm just in touch with what my love my sense of humor is. Right? Like if I think something's funny, you know sometimes an actor will read something and I'll be like, well that's not how I, I had it in my head. Can you read an unproduced comedy script from someone else, not your show, just mm -hmm. a totally you know pilot or a feature? that someone else has written and can you tell on the page whether the jokes land or not? I think so. So so in other words, it's all uh, in your reading and that sensibility. Yes. I, I submit to you that you cannot, uh, I can't train you to do that. I can take what you have and, and make it better, mm -hmm. but you have to be born with that. Hmm. I think that's it's that's an interesting might, idea. There's maybe nature versus nurture in there where you were brought up in a way that the nurturing helped that to develop. Mm -hmm. But I think that you have to have that sensibility because I don't know about you, but I know plenty of people that don't have a sense of humor at all. Hmm. And so if they hear it, let alone read it, they won't have a clue. <laughs> a lot of executives probably. <laughs> <laughs> and and a few in management every right, once in a while. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. agents. That's that's sad. It, it is. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate, but it's true. All right, so comedy and writing for TV both tend to be collaborative in nature. Mm -hmm. And even though you were writing a lot of things on your own, you still had to collaborate with people. You didn't do all the voices. You didn't draw it. You didn't oh, yeah. produce it. You didn't raise the money. Mm -hmm. It's a collaborative business. Yes. What would you say, uh, working on a show that has many different fingers in that pie, what would you say makes a good collaboration work? Hmm. Well, uh, obviously, the, the people that you're working with are, are of primary importance there, sure. right? Uh, so we had we had some really wonderful artists, and, and a lot like the actors. You know, sometimes they draw something, and you're like, that's not how I saw that character at all, but it it's it works. It's great. It fits within the, the style of the show. What would happen if it didn't work? Because that had to have happened over 53 episodes. And that that's where you sort of have to get some... some there's a lot of trust involved. So we had a really fantastic uh, supervising director named Brian Sheasley. And, uh, you know, if something wasn't quite flying for, for us, we could pull him aside and say, hey, Brian, you know, this, this scene where this is happening, could we speed this up a little or could we 
try to try to convey this in a different way. Right. And he was really open and receptive. And likewise, if he said, hey, we're having a little trouble boarding this, can we make it this way? Then he could come to us. Was like, he also your voice director? Uh, so actually, you know, Dan Mandel did a lot of the, the uh, voice direction. Yeah, he, he'd sit in, uh, like I said, uh, as an actor by trade, he, he just had a better ear for that kind of thing mm-hmm. than I did. So uh, we had, we always had, yeah, Brian would always sit in and he would be the person sort of calling the shots. But as far as uh, uh, Dan and me, our influence on the voice stuff, Dan would always sit in the booth. I, I'd rather be off in my, my you know, cubicle writing. Okay. So. All right. So, so, okay. Back to what makes a good collaboration work. So, I think uh, uh, having trust in the other people with mm-hmm. you. Um, we we got really lucky with Brian. Uh, again, we we had a director early on that we did not get along with so well, and and you know, like I think the first half of our first season in particular is pretty rocky for a lot of the, the conflict reasons. That's common. But once you once you get into a, a space where you can, you know, you can go to the person, you can talk to them, and, and nobody's going to get their hackles up, and you're not going to get your hackles up when they say, hey, that we're having trouble with this scene, you know. It's a professional conversation about how do you solve a problem. Right. Not you suck. It's not an attack. Right. right. Yeah. Which does happen on some shows. It does. But, but when it's when it works, it's a really a professional exchange of this is not working for me. How can we make this better? Yeah. And Brian Cheesley in particular was just so, so wonderful about... Uh, you know, here's here's a story about him. Which uh, so, my my parents came in to visit to to and you know I was taking them around the the production mm-hmm. the the uh, studio the and stuff. Yeah, the studio. office. And uh, Brian came up to me and he, he asked me a question that I was like, you know, this doesn't seem it didn't seem like a big question, right? Like it was you know it was, it was something like in the scene Dan has an axe. Is it a fire axe or is it a wood chopping right, axe or whatever? Right. And you know, didn't think anything of it. And then uh, maybe a month or two later, my wife's parents were in town, and I took them around, gave them the tour, and he did the same thing again. I was like, why is he? And then I realized that he wanted to give me the appearance of being the decision maker and the person in charge in front of my parents or my in-laws. You know, and I hadn't even thought about it, but it was just a really kind and thoughtful and un- unnecessary, but uh, a really nice thing for him to do, right? I'd say that's a. So he was just that kind of guy. That's what we would call a mensch. Yes. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, that's a really uh, that is a thoughtful thing to do. Yeah. Because there are a lot of directors wouldn't think about you at all. I wouldn't even, uh, you know, I, I consider myself a relatively nice person, but I, I wouldn't think to do that for somebody, right? Well, that's yeah, and but now that you've seen it happen twice, yes, you might think about doing that in the future on a show. That's right. And if somebody's parents come in, you might actually go up and try and make them look good. Yes. I think that's I think any time in this industry that you can make other people look good, mm-hmm. you look good. Yeah. Well, and Brian in particular had no reason to, you know, he's got primetime Emmys, he's got daytime Emmys, mm-hmm. he's he's been around the block a few times. And uh, you know, I think that the reason that he that everybody loves working with him is because he is that that sort of kind and thoughtful and you know he's not a jerk, so it's it's really so. So again, as far as the collaboration goes, when he comes in and has a, a question or a problem, you listen to him because he's not doing it out of ego. Do you find anything in collaboration that is disadvantageous? Well, I think uh, I think sometimes you get the too many cooks in too the ma- kitchen. You know. Too many people want to throw their ideas in, and the whole thing becomes a stew. Yeah, and and again, when it does become about ego, I think that that's a problem too. You know, when somebody feels like. I'm not presenting, you know, hopefully everybody's working towards a greater goal of, of you know, making the best show they can make. 
uh, sometimes people just want to get something in so they can point to it and say, I did that. Right. So I think that's when there's too much of that, you, you get a little what, what you would get you, in trouble. What would you say is the biggest disaster you ran into and how did you solve it? Oh, boy. Um, Something's just falling apart and how did you solve that problem? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, our, talk, I'm talking about story-wise and, okay. and, and production-wise, not necessarily interpersonal-wise. Okay, because, well, it's all related, though, right? It, so, it is, certainly. Um, so, yeah, without naming names, uh, we we did have a creative consultant who was on before Rob Long who just... Uh, wasn't on the same page with you at all. Yeah, I think that's the nicest possible way to put it. Um, we did not get along. And he kind of felt like, I've done this before, and you haven't, so, you know. I know everything, I know everything and you, you know nothing. Right. And at one point, he wrote a really sort of condescending email about, uh, you know, guys, the, the network brought me in for a reason, and it's that reason is basically that you don't know what you're doing, and sort of implied that he was shielding us from the network, seeing just how awful we were, and, you know, just really sort of undercutting. And he said, you know, they didn't come in and say, hey, Dan and Chris have this brilliant show and they're geniuses and just write down everything they say. They brought me in because I know what I'm doing and you don't, basically. Right. And so I wrote an email back uh, saying, basically, uh, well, it started with, yes, but they also didn't say, hey, we've got this awful show run by idiots and we need you to ride in on your white effing horse and save the day. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we had some issues, at which point... Uh, the executive producer, Dan Angel, sort of came in and said, you guys have to work this out. Like, this, this is, we're all on the same team here, and sure. if you guys can't, you know, and he was sort of being the, the, the parent in that situation. But he hadn't been in the writer's room with us. And so, also, I would say this also, um, the guy just had some weird ideas about what the show should be and what was funny that... Uh, that differed from yours. Yeah. You had true creative differences. Yeah, but also... <laughs> Which is a term often used to mean we just don't like each other. Right. Well, this was both. So uh, so finally, you know, I just said, you know, I'm just not going to worry about this. I'm going to let this guy turn in his terrible, terrible script to, to the executive producers. And basically, he turned in his script and they said, we can't give this to the network. You need to rewrite it. At which point, he went behind their backs to the network and said, the executive producers are giving me a lot of trouble. And, you know, I guess he didn't know that they had all worked together at the production company that optioned us in the first place. And he sort of shot himself in the foot and and was asked, I don't know if he was asked to leave or if it just got uncomfortable enough that he just left. Mm. But he kind of got rid of himself, so. He, well, that's, you know what, that's the best way for that to yeah to, to end is that he self-terminated. Right. Well, <laughs> so. and then you wound up with uh, with, with Rob Long. Yes, and then who Bruce was awesome. Ferber, and, and then Bruce Ferber, who was, was also awesome. Yes. I, 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 I no doubt Bruce Ferber was outstanding. Oh, he was great. Um, all right, so uh, what for you, this is a question I like to ask lots of guests, and it's, a I think, a difficult question to get to the answer. What for you makes a good story good? Hmm. I think what makes a good story good, uh, I mean, you hear a lot about character, right, and yep. character development and yep. character interaction. Um, I would say the the best stories get to an ending that seems like it was inevitable at the end, but mm -hmm. you didn't see coming, right? Like uh, That's very good. I think that... that uh, and satisfying. Yeah, like if you see an underdog sports movie... 
you're pretty sure you know how it's going to play out, right? right? And then, you know, but then I, I think probably when the people saw Rocky for the first time, like he loses at the end of the first Rocky movie, right? Yeah. But like he gets his self-respect and he earns so much more. And Well, doesn't he, doesn't he tie, isn't it a, a split decision? It's split decision, but he still loses the bout, right? right? Like he's not the champion at the end of the right, first exactly. Rocky movie. And then, you know, that's, but then by the end of the fourth Rocky movie, you kind of know how it's going to go, right? <laughs> so, exactly. Or Rambo. Right. You right. know how they're going to end. And even then, the first First Blood movie was amazing. It was so good. Uh, and, and so, and so you're, what you're saying is, which I think is a very valuable uh, take on it, mm-hmm. which is it needs to be something that we know what's going to happen, but we don't know how it's going to happen. Right. Right. And also, I mean, yeah, because you wouldn't want to watch an underdog sports movie where halfway through the movie they all quit the soccer team and start a coffee shop, right? <laughs> or, yeah, or, yeah, they they, they just all um, – yes, that's right. They just quit. Right. Or they go into space. I mean, like you just – you know, so, so yeah, you do, you do sort of set up some expectations. But when you arrive at a conclusion that seems like it couldn't have gone any other way but that you still didn't see coming. They you all know? become pet trainers. Right. Yeah, right. That's not, that's <laughs> not going to work. Not at all. So that's what I love about stories is, is when you get surprised. I also love watching movies. Like I remember when I sat in the, the Sixth Sense for the first time. And I'm, I'm a quarter of the way into the movie, and I'm like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Exactly. Next. Yeah. And if you go back and watch that movie again, you all of it is right there in front of you. Right. That's brilliant. Yeah. That movie is truly brilliant. Uh, and occasionally uh, M. Night Shyamalan is, is also good, and occasionally he's really not good at all. But But when he's on, he's really on, and you don't know what's coming next. And yet when you go back and review it, it's all there. Yeah, absolutely. And that movie in particular, Sixth Sense, Everything is right in front of your eyes. Right. The entire movie. And you don't see it. I mean, well, uh, my ex-wife actually, three minutes into the movie, said, I know who, I know what this is. And she, <laughs> she was right. So some, sometimes that doesn't work so well. But for me, I didn't get it at all till the very end. Yep. Which is exactly what it should be. Yeah. Um, uh, all right. So surely in your career, you must have met uh, some uh, or, or had experiences with some very unusual people or circumstances. Um, do you can you relate to us an oddball, a weird, a quirky, funny, offbeat, strange story, or just plain funny story that's happened to you? Um, yes. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I will tell you the story of the worst pitch meeting I ever had. Worst pitch ever. Um, so this was really early on. This was my first writing partner in L.A., uh, a good friend of mine, and we. You want to tell us his name or not? His name is Alan Piper. Alan Piper. Great guy. Uh, we had our first meeting, not our first meeting, but maybe our second meeting of all time. Uh, uh, like we'd just gotten an agent. We we're right out of the gate. And so, of course, we assumed that we would take a meeting, pitch something. They'd say, of course, and then we're writing movies for the, the studios, right? So uh, so we walk in. First meeting, it's uh, Dimension Films, and it's a guy named Michael Zumas. I don't know if he's still there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we had this sort of, uh, you know, lower to mid-budget. We wanted to create a new Jason, a new Freddy, a new unstoppable killing machine, right? Like, it was a horror horror movie, obviously. Um, so we went in and we pitched a... Basically, it was called... What was it called? It's called Misery Island, and it was about... Misery Island. Yeah, cause, which is a real place off of Salem, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, so it was about a guy, basically, who sells his soul for revenge and then comes back as an unstoppable killing machine, right? And so we pitch it to him, and he listens, and he nods... And he goes, he pauses for a second, he goes, could we make him a serial rapist? <laughs> and Al and I looked at each other and we're like, uh, sorry? And he goes, because I just, I guess he had seen some play in which 
this woman, somebody broke into her apartment to attempt to rape her, and she fought him off and then tortured him for the rest of the play, and he thought that was really awesome. And so he's like, so could we do that? And, you know, here's the thing. This is our second meeting of all time, right? So if somebody said that to us today, we'd walk out and go, well, that guy's crazy, and just you know, right off the meeting, right? But uh, but we thought this is, you know, if we make this guy happy, this is our key to writing a dimension film, right? <laughs> so we actually, we went home and we... we, we uh, thought about it. Thought about it. And we wrote a new outline and it didn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But uh, uh, so instead of selling his soul to get revenge now, this guy's a serial rapist <laughs> and he breaks into this woman's house and she gets the upper hand on him, but then she's like a... a uh, Wiccan, so she tries to cast a spell on him, and it goes wrong, and turns him into an unstoppable killing machine. And then we're back into the the Jason or Freddy thing, right? How'd that go? Well, so here's the thing, though. So we pitched it to we went back to Michael Zumas, and he's like, "That sounds fantastic." And so he took us upstairs to his boss, who I don't know if he was the decision maker, or just you know, sort of the next rung up on the right. Um, so we do our whole you know serial rapist dog and pony show, and uh, and the guy you know, listening to us very politely. And he goes, I just don't really understand this, you know, this woman, somebody breaks into her apartment and tries to rape her. She gets the upper hand on him. Why doesn't she call the police <laughs> instead of trying to cast a spell on him? At which point Michael Zumas turns to us and goes, that was my concern. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, that's a terrible idea. It was your idea. Right? I mean, we didn't say that in the room. I, I think I would have in retrospect. Well, I wouldn't have gotten in the situation at all in retrospect. But uh, but yeah, it was just this really hilarious, like, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah, well, the, and that story, I assume in many different ways has played out in your life where somebody has said something in a room that was like, that can't be right. What did they? What did they read? What we wrote, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You get a lot of like. Did you read the same thing that I sent you, or is this like some dream you had? <laughs> All right. So, what's the best piece of advice or a good tip that you can give to those who are starting out in the business today, or maybe are in a little bit but looking to take it to the next level? Okay. Well, uh, if you are just starting out in the business today, I would say. Um, utilize every contact that you have like when i moved out there i had this notion that like oh i don't want help from people i want to make it on my own right which is ridiculous that's and ridiculous so right. far away from reality that you know it's like you know it's like childlike in a way right um yeah, so if you have a cousin who went to college with somebody who works in the mailroom of an agency, use that contact. If you, uh, you know, if you if you're reading something about some uh, production company executive who went to the same college as you, you know, when you write that letter, say, "Hey, I went to, you know, or grew up in the same town," or like however tenuous, however, you know, I would say that's my main piece of advice is that at the beginning. It's a lot less about the writing and a lot more about getting your writing in front of people. Contact. Because especially with comedy, but I think with drama too, you never know what somebody's tastes are going to be, what somebody's sensibilities. You know, uh, uh, you can you can make the best strawberry ice cream in the world, but if somebody wants chocolate, they're not going to buy it. So you've got to get your stuff out there and seen by people. Mm -hmm. And and I would say that, that like I said, utilize every contact. Um, I would also say don't worry about bothering people. 
because one of two things will happen. If, if you try to get somebody to read your script, they will either tell you yes and they will read your script or they will tell you no and forget about you immediately. Like you have to go really above and beyond to get anybody to remember you from a no, right? Unless you're a stalker. Yeah, and even then, light, light stalking, you know? Light stalking. <laughs> wow. I'm, I, I... No, but like if you, you know, if, you, if you're submitting something to a production company and you have like... Absolutely. Google, Wikipedia, learn everything you can about everyone who works there. And then, like I said, if you have a contact or something in common with one of them, mention that when, you, when you're attempting to submit your material. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, truly valuable advice. And for more than one reason, because um, when you uh, finally make that contact with that person, they again, going back to what we talked about earlier, they may not want what you've provided to them, mm -hmm. but they may find in you something that's valuable for something else. And so get it's a numbers game, essentially. It's right. a sales game. You need to get in front of as many people as you can, and you need to make as many contacts as you can. Yeah, well, I, the way that I think about it is there are two type of, types of people in, who make it in Hollywood, right? And the first type is... You know, the, the people who have made it before they even walk through the door. Mm -hmm. You know, my uncle runs the studio or, you know, whatever. My, my dad's an executive somewhere right. or, you know, I went to Harvard with the showrunner on this and this. Right. And so they have no problem, you know. They're, like they're already connected in some right. way. There are people who drive out from Harvard having worked on the Lampoon and have a writer's assistant position or better lined up for them before they come out. Sure. Most people aren't one of those those people. And so the other type of people are the ones who basically go out there and bang their heads against the wall for 10 years until lightning finally strikes and they get in, right? But every single person, I, I took a survey of uh, all my working writer friends and I said, you know, how did you get your first job and how did you get the job you have now? And uh, all of them except, well, all of them except me, basically, uh, and, and actually Eric and Carell, the guys who worked for us, had the same story, which was, you know, I had some tenuous connection to some showrunner and I got my material in front of them because my college roommate was best friends with his girlfriend or whatever it was. And, you know, through whatever whatever avenues they could work, they got their material in front of the people. I would say that's a that's also quite a common story that it's that's sometimes the thinnest, most tenuous connection gets you in the door. And you just don't know where that's coming from. What you don't want to be is uh, the person that... Uh, the person on the receiving end thinks is um, going to hurt them, and there are people like that that mm -hmm. are that are a little scary. So you just you want to be smart about it, but at right. the same time, it is a matter of being. And the you know when you talk about the ten years, it is persistence. Mm -hmm. There, you know, what they say at UCLA in the graduate school there is the only people who don't succeed um, in some way are people who give up. So mm -hmm. it's persistent, or get hit by a bus, or get well. Yeah. That's a kind of giving up, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, yes, or get hit by a bus, and please don't do that. Right. Um, yeah, I would, I would advise against that for people just starting out, trying not to get. Hit well, by I think a bus. this is all very valuable stuff, and this has been a lot of valuable information today, uh, Chris. I greatly appreciate you coming into the studio today. It's been a terrific interview, and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And so we've come to the end of today's story beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.